Hello, and welcome to Silk Road Rising's In Dialogue, a podcast dedicated to the lively exchange of ideas and experiences. Silk Road Rising is a community-centered art-making and art service organization rooted in Asian, Middle Eastern, and Muslim experiences. Through live theater, digital media, and arts education, we challenge disinformation, cultivate new narratives, and promote a culture of continuous learning. I'm your host, Jamil Corey, co-founder and co-executive artistic director of Silk Road Rising. On this episode of In Dialogue, I'm continuing the conversation with my dear friend, colleague, and collaborator, Dr. Michael Malik-Najjar, Associate Professor of Theater Arts at the University of Oregon. This is the second of nine conversations I'm having with Malik exploring the Arab American and Middle Eastern American theater movements. Today we are examining the period from roughly 1880 to the 1967 Six-Day Arab-Israeli War. This conversation was recorded on August 21st, 2019. Welcome, Dr. Michael Malik-Najjar. So I want to start by asking Malik to give us some background on those early years, that early, that early period of Arab immigrants essentially defining themselves and establishing an identity for themselves in an American context. Well, I think that we have to look at some of the, the push factors that created this, this migration quickly. One is the, the 1860 war that took place in the mountains of what is now Lebanon uh, between the Maronites and the, the Druze specifically, but it also uh, entailed the Ottoman Empire and the French and the British. The, the, those events were so cataclysmic to those two groups that it led to a series of migrations from that part of the world, from the Levant, to the United States. And the, the, the primary groups that, that migrated were, of course, Maronite Christians and other Christians from that area um, because of the Ottoman rule of the time. And in that group of those Christians was a very talented group of Christian uh, Lebanese writers. Uh, just beautifully talented people who came to New York City um, and uh, established newspapers and were also writing at the same time. Um, there were other groups as well. There were some, the, definitely Druze that started some newspapers as well and others. But what it did was it created a context within New York City, specifically on uh, in Washington uh, Street, that, that really began to tell us that this is a formation of a very small enclave of writers that um, were trying to deal with being immigrants to a new country, but also heralding back to their, their beautiful traditions. And now they were part of the Nahda, which was the great Arab Renaissance. So these writers were very important even in Arabic before they ever became prominent in English. And the writers I'm speaking of specifically are people like Khalil Gibran, um, Mikhail Naimi, and um, Amin Rihani. Those are the three primary figures around which uh, I focus my work only because they were also playwrights, which many people don't know. As a matter of fact, these writers were not just writing these sort of spiritual books that we often think of, um, but they were also uh, important, prominent playwrights even in their own time. 
And what inspired them to write for the stage, for the theater? Was that, was that a passion, an interest, a practice that they brought with them? Or was that something that emerged here uh, in the U.S.? No, I, I believe it, it, they brought that with them. You know, we forget that the Middle East uh, has a very rich performative tradition. Um, right. And it also has a very rich sort of Western theatrical tradition that was ushered in from the time of Napoleon's conquest of Egypt. Um, but they had been brought up in a milieu, an artistic milieu that had theater part that was part and parcel of what they did and what they, they worked with. Now, Amin Rehani was the only real theater person among the three major writers that I just discussed. He actually jumped on with a Shakespearean troupe and they toured yeah. and he they ran out of money in Boston and he ended up just being kind of stranded there, which I find to be a very sad theater story, but not an uncommon one. Um, but um, the different writers like Khalil Gibran and Mikhail Naimi, they had a passion for theater, even though they weren't theater people. So they wrote plays, but they didn't really come from the theater. But that said, all of these plays are still part of this rich tradition. Um, and I, what, what is really unfortunate is that these plays were never produced. And I think that gets us into the question of access that I'm sure we'll be dealing with in, in future episodes. The access of Middle Easterners and Arab Americans in trying to get their plays produced on stages in the United States, which is something they're still struggling with to this very day. And, and part of what, much of what they were contending with were the, the sort of the push and pull of the immigrant experience. That's right. The, you know, preserving one's culture and becoming Americans. Right. And, you know, how, how those processes play out. Yeah. So was there a desire to, uh, to investigate or grapple with or interrogate uh, those experiences on stage? Well, the first Arab American play, 1908, was Wejda. Uh, that's, and they, we call that the first Arab American play because it was the first one written in English. So, uh, um, I mean, uh, Rehani's play uh, harkens back to a, a pre-Islamic history, uh, has a very strong female heroine, ha takes place in this, this uh, proto-Islamic setting, um, and is actually quite an interesting play, though he carries the Orientalism of his time into the play. So there's actually a scene with sort of dancing harem girls, which is so shocking to come from an Arab American writer. We normally would expect this from other writers. Um, people and, and like what, what? What informs that Orientalism? Well, I, I think that he was brought up in the there were there were a lot of um, missionary uh, groups that were trying at the time to set up schools in what is now Lebanon, um, and their desire was to sort of separate the Christian Arabs from the, the Arabs that uh, were more Muslim uh, affiliated. Um, now again, are Christian Arabs Arabs or not? We can get into that discussion later. But what they were trying to do was trying to separate these two groups. And one of the ways of doing that was by saying, you are, they are other, they are, they are Arab, they are Muslim, you are not, you are Phoenician, you are Christian. And I think he brought that sort of Phoenicianism into his work because the play feels like an outsider writing about Arabs and Muslims rather than somebody who is inside the culture. Other writers like Khalil Gibran, however, were writing plays that took place in the United States. So one of his most famous famous plays, that's, I'm using that term very liberally, um, was uh, The Colored Faces. Uh, and in that play, it's about a group of uh, Lebanese immigrants or Syrian immigrants of the time uh, living in New York City. And they're, they're um, talking badly about this young writer who is getting prominently uh, produced and, and published. Um, and uh, a young woman stands up and defends this writer. She says, don't, you know, we should be proud of this person. He's of our culture. He's of our, of our people. And we should be heralded 
heralding them rather than debasing them. Well, the writer walks in and all of a sudden everybody starts praising him and they start patting his back and telling him how wonderful he is. And uh, he, after he leaves, the woman pipes up and says, how dare you ha show your one face when you're amongst yourselves, but then show another face when this man is here. We should be treating all of these writers with respect. So I find that to be interesting that these writers were writing plays that took place back in the homeland as well as here in the United States. And they were trying to grapple with the dual existence they were feeling as immigrants from that place to a city like New York City. So, so you had referenced these writers having been originally Syrian or, have, or at the time right. Syrian. Yes. Do you want to explain for our audience what, what you mean by that? Well, before Lebanese independence, Lebanon was part of Syria. And so, my, for instance, my grandfather's passport says Syria, even okay. though now it's in what would now be territorially Lebanon. Um, so I think that that's one, one thing that we have to remember is that these people came from a place called Greater Syria, even if they came from the anti-Lebanon mountains, which is the Lebanese mountain range from which we now call Lebanon itself. Right. Um, and, and so uh, it's difficult to, to use the word Syrian because now that's become a contested term to, to many Lebanese who now feel that they are completely Lebanese and have no Syrian connection. But we must remember historically Lebanon was at one point part of, of greater Syria. And, and so when they wrote about their experiences or spoke about themselves, they had a consciousness of being from perhaps a larger territory. That's right. That, yeah. that they might, called themselves Syrians, as a matter of fact, yeah. Which may have encompassed the entire Eastern Mediterranean. That's true. At, at, at that that's time. right. So, you know, the, ge the geography kept shifting and it keeps shifting. And I think that's something else hopefully we'll discuss in future um, episodes is how do you define yourself? Are you a Lebanese? Are you uh, are somebody, a sect from Lebanon? Are you Syrian? Are you Levantine? You know, where do we draw these distinctions and why? I think becomes part of the nomenclature issue that faces a lot of this writing. And to this day. To this day. You know, uh, forever debating and uh, deconstructing what essentially colonial borders mean. Absolutely. And, and what, you know, what is being said about uh, historic relationships and ties and communities and, and continuity. Precisely. Uh, so moving a little beyond that, that early period, yeah. uh, more immigration and then there was a cut in immigration. Uh, and so we saw very few people from the Levant, the Levant coming. Uh, could you, was, was there a sense of disappearing? Was there a sense of, of erasing one's culture? Uh, you know, there was such a strong assimilationist drive within you know, the broader United States. There was a lot of pressure on people to essentially become white people, and so many Middle Eastern people did, which is a conversation we'll be having at a later, on a later episode. Uh, but I'd be interested, you know, how did that play out? Uh, how did some of these changes play out in cultural production? Well, the, in the Arab American experience specifically, uh, we can break down several waves of immigration. The first one being from the 1880s to the end of World War I, from World War I to 1967, and then from 67 to the present day. And you could even break that down into smaller and smaller groups. But that first immigrant group was escaping famine and, um, and different cultural conditions. The silk industry had collapsed in the Levantine area. Um, the famine that was imposed by the Ottoman Empire on that area was absolutely horrific. And some of the accounts are as 
mortifying as any that you could imagine uh, coming from that area. So they were fleeing uh, that country because everything had really gone south in that area. And they came to the United States with the, the idea that they would be peddlers, shopkeepers, etc., and send money back and then eventually go back themselves. Well, with different immigration laws, especially during World War I, they weren't allowed to go back and therefore they stayed and they thought, well, I guess this is now my homeland. I really can't go back even if I wanted to. The, the waves that came after World War I um, and during World War II uh, brought a different kind of aesthetic to uh, the, the belief that there was now going to be an assimilationist phase where we will not only stay but try to assimilate into the American mainstream. And then after, of course, we'll talk about this uh, later, but after 67, there was a, another wave of highly educated uh, Arabs from all over the Middle East that then emigrated. So you have all of these different waves, but during those different waves were different waves of cultural production. So the very early Arab immigrants were doing religious plays, historical plays, um, really things that you would imagine would be much like, say, a medieval mystery play. They were, they were very didactic. They were sometimes very religious. They were done in their native tongue. They were not English, done in English. And they were done primarily for immigrant audiences in, in order to teach them about their history, teach them about their religion, etc. With the arrival of those writers that we had discussed uh, earlier with the Penn Group, which was that uh, literary group that formed in New York, um, there was much more of a desire for a literary bent on uh, plays. And so the plays became more literary, more complex, and more um, uh, just, I, I think that they were trying to, to tackle much deeper issues that were part of their immigrant experience. Um, after the Penn Group disbanded in 1932 with the death of uh, Khalil Gibran, um, there was a sort of dormancy period where uh, there was still writing going on, but it was really not very theatrically oriented. It was mainly poetry. It was mainly uh, sort of novel uh, type situations. Um, and not until the 1960s do we start to see a reemergence of a professional playwright ethos uh, that, that arrives. So I think that when you're looking at that period, you're looking at a, a, a great number of um, U.S. governmental strictures that, that basically constrained who could or could not be, and this is another topic we'll discuss, who or co could not be considered white, who or who could not be considered American. Um, and those, I think, became so, such a preoccupation by those writers from the 30s to uh, the 60s that, that I, I don't know that uh, we had a lot of theatrical production at that time outside of churches, civic halls, etc. And I think that that's a, that's a period of theater history that I'm even more exp uh, excited about exploring as I go along because a lot of it is missing, frankly, and not, not really readily available. And, and I had alluded to earlier the disruptions in immigration yes. that, that occurred, where yes. there were essentially you know, periods of time where immigration from the Levant or from the Middle East as a whole was, uh, was, was curtailed or, or even ended. Uh, could you speak to the effect that maybe that had on uh, you know what what writers were thinking about how they were contending with uh, I mean that's going to create a crisis yeah, of sorts of you know, in terms of one's identity in terms of one's sense of belonging. Well, I, I think a lot of the writers turn towards spirituality in a sense okay. because. I think trying to deal with the governmental actions that were set up against them must have been so overwhelming. And there was a whole period where, where uh, the writers of that period and the people of that time were trying to litigate for their whiteness because 
if we think nativism is a problem now, I can't even imagine what it was like then. Um, and these, the, they would literally have to go to judges and litigate for their whiteness. Uh, there was case after case. And I, I made a list of all the different uh, immigration measures. I mean, the 1790 Naturalization Act, the 1906 creation of the Bureau of Immigration and Naturalization, um, the 1906 Immigrant and Naturalization Act, the Immigration Commission, the Census Bureau, uh, Restrictive Immigration Act, the National Origins Act, all of these acts that the U.S. had put forward to curtail immigration from what was then, you know, what they thought of as Asia, um, and they called these people Turks in Asia because they were still under the Ottoman Empire. So there was this desire by the U.S. government to curtail immigration and to strictly define who was and who was not a proper immigrant. Uh, and of course, uh, immigrants from Europe were given greater status than immigrants from Asia or from the Middle East. And this became another set of hurdles that these writers, uh, I think, were dealing with in their daily lives. Even though it didn't reflect very often in their writing, I think that they were definitely, I, I, I can't imagine the kind of pressures they were under to fit in with American society and this very strict definition of whiteness itself. What, was there a consciousness around being a racial minority or somehow uh, and, and, and some kind of affinity political or, or oh. social or otherwise with other racialized minorities? Well I'd love to say there was uh, an affiliation that was happening. Unfortunately it was the opposite. I think every group was so desperate to make it in this country that they ended up litigating for themselves at the, sometimes at the expense of others to be honest. So for instance lighter skinned Christian uh, immigrants from the Levant were granted special citizenship over darker skin Muslim or Muslim affiliated uh, okay. people of the of the area um, and you know I have to tell you some of the things that the quotes that you find about um, about the immigrants of the time are so shocking um, you know we had uh, some senators talking about how these people were from the Semitic hordes the Phoenician spawn. Uh, they, there, there's, there was such hatred and, yeah. and uh, racist language involved in um, these people and how they were perceived by those who were not European or, or uh, Northern European. Um, I, I think that that really created a very negative atmosphere that pitted people against one another. So they were going to court case after court case trying to litigate to say, I'm white, I'm a free white person. Because if you were not a free white person at that time, you were basically persona non grata and you had no rights. And to be in that position, as we've seen with, of course, other minority groups in this country, was absolutely dire. I mean, it led to, if not some sort of spiritual death, it led to a physical uh, death in many cases. And what about a consciousness of developments, changes in the Middle East itself? The, the, the level of awareness when we're talking about Lebanese independence, when we're talking about the end of the Ottoman Empire, you know, the Sykes-Picot Agreement, the emergence of these British and, and French spheres, uh, and, and the resistance to that. Uh, the, 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 the emergence of Arab nationalism. How was that affecting uh, the writers? 
Well, I, I think it affected them very uh, negatively in many ways because uh, there, there became a break between the Anglophone and the Francophone writers, first of all. So those that were under French domination in the Middle East became much more Francophone allied uh, versus those under British domination that became much more Anglophone allied. So you saw many writers that were Francophone allied going to places like Quebec or to France because they felt like, okay, there was actually a way to write and communicate in these places that was much more available to them as opposed to the more Anglophone uh, writers that came to the United States. Um, but even then, it caused uh, rifts because I think that what happened was you had um, American writers that expected a kind of writing that was being produced at that time. And these writers, because English was their second language, would often be writing in ways that were not so comfortable to uh, literary critics and others of the time. So for instance, Rihani's The Book of Khalid, which is a very interesting novel, um, is it's convoluted English. It's not the easily digestible English that you would expect from a lot of English novels. And therefore, it's been cast off and treated as some sort of secondhand book, if ever considered at all. Frankly, it's been forgotten by, by most. Um, the, a book like The Prophet by Khalil Gibran is always strangely categorized in spirituality or new age instead of in literature or poetry. Why is that? You know, one, one has to ask these questions, and I really think it comes down to a kind of prejudice against that kind of writing. There was something about that kind of English that was not accepted by the mainstream and therefore ejected or placed in other categories. So a book, the book of Khalid literally disappears off shelves until just recently when it was republished. Um, the Prophet has been selling amazingly well, but I defy you to find it anywhere outside of a New Age uh, or spirituality section or religion section yeah. in a bookstore to this day. So I think that that kind of prejudice against the writers was there in their own time, and I think that it's continued on to this this day. And it was probably, I'm going to assume, a rejection of aesthetics. Of a course. Rejection of, and whatever translation was occurring between between the Arabic and English or between the French and English uh, and, and how that would play itself out you know, right. in, in literary form. Um, I want to go to the 1960s and to the period, you know, sort of the eve of the Six-Day War yeah. uh, in, in 1967. And of course, so many people being captivated and inspired by the dreams of, of Arab nationalism and a sort of Arab secularism, uh, uh, Arab unity, um, which, you know, grew out of an anti colonial and anti-imperialist politic. Uh, and then we saw the devastation of the Six-Day War, yeah. which we'll talk about in, uh, in our next episode. Right. Uh, but what was going on in the, the early and, and mid-60s yeah. with regards to Arab literature and Arab theater? Well, let's, let's do a little uh, pre-dating, uh, which is to say that during this whole time, Hollywood was creating uh, Arab fantasias, right? Flying carpets, sheikhs with, you know, sheikhs, I should say, with their swords, um, harem girls. The Arab at that time period, from the early 1900s to the 1960s, was a very romanticized figure, never played by a Middle Easterner or an Arab to begin with. Rudolf Valentino is as close as you're ever going to get to somebody playing uh, an Arab. But, um, th but there was something uh, very romantic and very um, non-threatening about these characters. As a matter of fact, they were even heroic. And, and with Orientalism came the rise of Orientalist buildings and architecture and, and, uh, and different styles of art. So, so a very interesting shift occurs in the 1960s because with the Six-Day War, I think it's pre predicated on the 48 
war between the Arabs and, uh, and the Jews at the time, which then led to the formation of the State of Israel. But then in 67, it shifts very radically because once the Six-Day War ends and Israel becomes the occupier of these different territories, um, the Arab image shifts from this romanticized sheikh and his harem girls to the terrorists the bomber, the suicide bomber, etc. Um, and uh, I, the hijacker. And the hijacker, yeah. yeah. And Edward Said, believe it or not, I mean, in 1967, writes an, uh, an essay called The Arab Portrayed, where he talks about this very phenomenon in 1967. So this is nothing that was really new. A lot of people placed this shift in the 80s or 90s. No, as a matter of fact, this was happening in the 60s. And I think what it ultimately came down to was, and Said and others, Ibrahim Abu Laghoud, and others like uh, those scholars were talking about how uh, in the media the Arabs were basically portrayed as the bad guys against the, the good Israeli state and therefore that dichotomy played out in many ways including film, including novels, including other forms of literature um, and uh, w- whether or not that dichotomy was real or not didn't really matter in the end in the minds of the American populace that was the, the case. And, and the vilification sort of stuck. Yeah, exactly. A heartfelt thank you to our guest, Dr. Michael Malik-Najjar, for such inspiring conversation, and a big thanks to you, our listening audience, for joining us at In Dialogue. Bravo to Alex Gresh for recording and editing this episode, and to Andy Lynn for production managing our show. Over the next seven episodes, we'll be continuing our exploration of the Arab American and Middle Eastern American theater movements with Dr. Michael Malik Najjar. In our next episode, we'll be examining the period from the 1967 Arab-Israeli War to the terrorist attacks of September 11, 2001. This podcast is a project of Silk Road Rising. As a nonprofit organization, we rely on the support of those who engage and enjoy our work. We hope that you will support our ongoing efforts and consider making a donation. To do so, please visit our website at www.silkroadrising.org. That's silkroadrising.org. Click on donate and thank you for your support. Until next time, keep helping the world heal.